been working through the parables of the kingdom. We spent uh, a good bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount looking at the character of a disciple, a character of one who is a, a child of the kingdom. And then we went from there to say, well, you know, this is the character, what, a, what, what a, a kingdom follower looks like. But what about the kingdom itself? What can we expect? What can we um, look to between Jesus' first coming and his coming back to finish the work that he started? And we've, we've looked at a number of these parables that have kind of turned the diamond of the kingdom and shown us different aspects, different, different pieces of the puzzle that as we put it together, we get a, a clear picture of what God's up to, of what we can expect this side of the new heavens and the new earth. And today we'll look at Matthew 20 to continue filling out that picture. And the, the question that's being asked today is, is really a question of, will our sacrifice, those of us who are followers of the king, will the sacrifices that we make be worth it? Or to ask it maybe another way, what will we get for our kingdom labors? One of the most noticed and used movie quotes of the last 20 years is Show Me the Money from Jerry Maguire. Even if you've never seen the movie, you've probably heard the quote, Show Me the Money. It's football player, professional football player who's got this agent who's played by Tom Cruise and uh, he is a, a prima donna. You know, he's a, he's a guy that's a receiver and he... He wants to, to make it big. He wants not just to have a contract to play in the professional football league, but the contract, you know, to be the highest paid person, to, to be the superstar. And he's, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm doing my job. I'm putting in my work. Now it's your job as the agent to, to make sure I get paid, to show me the money. And that's the attitude that we, we grow up with, that we, we, uh, we, the culture that, that we live in, that, that we're a product of. When we come through school, it's always the focus on if you can make the grades, then you'll get the best scholarship. Or if you are the best athlete on the field, whatever that is, the field of play, then you might get the athletic scholarship. It's always this reward, merit-based system. Uh, and it, it works. It produces people that are, that are motivated, that can excel and achieve. Uh, the only problem with that is that God's economy is different than ours. And when we come to the kingdom of God, we can't just import the things that, that we know of and that, that are, are normal to us in our world into God's kingdom. It's, uh, he plays by his own set of rules. He makes what's normal. He doesn't take what we think of as normal. He sets the norm. Well, today we, we see, and it's, it's Peter again, Poor Peter, he always gets, uh, seems to get picked on. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always the leader out there saying the things that maybe everybody else is thinking. And he always gets, uh, gets redirected by Jesus. So let me start in chapter 19, kind of setting up the context. This, the disciples are, are, are following Jesus. They're, they're going from town to town. And in one place, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he seems to be wanting, truly, to, to know how to in, inherit eternal life. And he asked Jesus a question, what, what must I do to get this eternal life that you, that you have to offer? And he, he asked him some questions, and they go back and forth. And, 
and at, at the end of it, the rich young ruler says, hey, I've done, I've done all the, the basic things of the law since birth. I, I, I've been a pretty good guy. And Jesus says, okay, well, then if you really want to follow me, go sell all that you have and leave it behind and then come. Come be one of these disciples. Come follow after me and give your life for me. And the rich young ruler, he says, is turned away and walks away sad because he had much wealth. He had much possessions, and he couldn't let go of them, even if it meant gaining uh, eternal life. And then this is what happens. It says, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So you've got this, this dialogue going back and forth after this interaction with this rich young ruler about riches, about what it, what it looks like to sacrifice, to, to, to give all, to gain uh, Jesus and through him eternal life. And, and the, the disciples go back and forth with Jesus trying to comprehend this, trying to, to, to say this is a hard saying. Who then can inherit eternal life? And he says, hey, with God this is possible. And then Peter says, well, we have given everything. We've left everything. We've left our homes, our livelihood, everything to follow you as Messiah. So what about us? You know, it's that question. What, what, will our, what will our sacrifice be worth? What will we get for our kingdom labors? And Jesus' promise is, it's going to be more than you can imagine. When the new heavens and the new earth comes, when the new world is instituted, you'll receive a hundredfold what you've left behind. So don't worry, Peter. It's worth it. But then he, he adds a word of caution. He says, but be careful, Peter, in your thinking here about rewards. Because many who are first will be last and last first. And then he goes on to tell the parable that's our focus of our text to kind of explain that statement. What does it mean, the first or last, the last or first? He says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they received more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, 
And you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. See, the same phrase is used at the first of the passage and the end of the passage. And he's saying, hey, this, this parable is explaining what I mean when I say many who are first will be last and last first. So, so what does he say? What does he mean? Well, there's at least uh, three things that we can pull from this passage. The first is this. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. To understand this parable, we must be reminded of, and we must think back to uh, the, the chosen place of the nation of Israel in God's big plan of redemption. When we, we go back to the Old Testament, and we studied this about a year ago in here, but when we go back to the, the, the opening chapters of the Bible, we see uh, a, a child of God and a daughter of God, a son of God and a daughter of God, who uh, Adam and Eve were put together in the garden and given huge purposes, uh, a great relationship with their loving God, a great relationship with one another, and they cashed it all in to set themselves up as God and to do what they wanted instead and, and brought sin into the world and, and, and devastation along with it so that what was supposed to be the setup for the glory of God to go to the ends of the earth, now through this sinful man and woman, this rebellious man and woman, now sin and devastation would go where the glory of God was supposed to go. And it's only a couple of generations after that that you see how bad things get. You see the flood where God has to, to wash the earth clean and, and save his creation from, from mankind and from the sin of man. And just to start over with Noah, with uh, the, reiterating his covenant. And yet sin remains. So he moves his plan to focus on one man and the people, the nation that would come from him. And that man was Abraham. And we studied that. We've looked at how... The reason God focused on Abraham wasn't any merit in and of Abraham himself or his family. He was actually from a family of idol worshipers. But God chose him saying, I'm going to preserve a people, a remnant. And through this people, I'll end up saving my entire earth, my, my entire creation, who people are the crown of. And so his plan to, to, to institute a a man and a family and a nation, the nation of Israel that would come from this man, was so that he could save uh, the earth. He could save the world. He could save all people. But we've, 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 we've traced through that, that storyline, and we've seen how the people of Israel continually forgot their mission. They tended, instead of saying, we are blessed to be a blessing to others, they tended to get the attitude very quickly, very easily of, we're blessed so that God can give us more blessing. We're blessed because we've, we are the people of God. We're the chosen ones. Look who we are. Look how great we are. Look what we've done um, by our own hands. And they're always their worst enemy because they're forgetting uh, this God that saved them and the reason, the purpose that they were saved in the first place, to be a blessing to the nations. And ultimately, the, the Son of God, Jesus, would come through this people 
to purchase salvation for the world. Uh, and, and the blessing would go as far as the curse had found, was found. Uh, the, the, the blessing would go no more to just one nation, but then back again to all nations in, in, in passages that we have, like the Great Commission, that says, hey, take this gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. Um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you always. So, so that's a, a brief view of what God's doing in the story of redemption. But Peter, just like his forefathers before him, is going to be tempted very soon after Jesus accomplishes this salvation that is so great. He's going to be tempted like the rest of his Jewish brothers to forget this mission again and to, to see, wait a second, this is, this is for us. You know, we get this. Look what he's accomplished for us. And, and to, to forget, oh, but we're given this so that we can be a blessing to others. Peter himself, uh, later on, a few years later, is given a vision by God. And a man named Cornelius is, is wanting uh, to, to, to know what it means to follow after God, to make Jesus his Savior, and, and he, he and his household. And so uh, God takes Peter, gives him a vision of what it means for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, and reminds him of this mission, and uses even Peter to help begin that process of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Mission is always, it always has been, and it always should be outward facing. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9 where he's talking about what it looks like for him to, to be a child of the kingdom. He says, I'm a slave of no one. I am free from all. But what I do is I choose to make myself a servant of all so that I might win some. He says, to the Jew, I become as a Jew. To the Greek, I become as a Greek. To the slave, I become as a slave. He, he says, I, I have chosen to make myself a master, I mean a servant of, of the loss, so that I might win some. What is he saying there? I've been blessed. I was an enemy of God headed to, Mas to, to Damascus to, to persecute Christians, and I met the living God. I met Jesus there on the road, and he turned my life around. And if I've, if, if, if I've received that blessing then I'm a servant of all, that I might win some, that I might be a blessing to others. Mission is always outward facing, but it's our tendency to forget that. It was going to be Peter's and the disciples' tendency to forget that. So Jesus says while he's there, hey, remember guys, the kingdom is, is, is not given to you so that you can receive more blessing and just build up blessing for the, the sake of blessing. But it's always given that you might be a blessing to others. These workers, these first workers in this vineyard, what were they wanting? Hey, if he's given them this, then surely I will get more. Surely my reward will be greater because I've done more. I've, I've, I've endured more. I, I've, I've taken the scorching heat. I've taken the whole labor of the day. What did they forget? They forgot the blessing that was theirs. They forgot, hey, you agreed to this. You entered. You're the only one of all of these labors that entered into a contract. Does that remind you of anybody? How about the people of Israel? The only part of God's people who entered into a contract with God. A covenant relationship where he says, I will bless you. 
It's interesting, as I was studying this passage, if you were to be a, a contract worker in a vineyard like this, one of, one of the benefits, well, you could eat grapes all day long. Uh, the, the owner suspected or projected to lose about 3% of his crop just by what the, the workers ate. So they're enjoying the fruits of their labor all day long. But that isn't what they focused on. Not only that, they, they benefit from this generous owner, the, the owner of the vineyard, having a, a longer relationship, a longer working relationship with him and all the benefits that come with that, the guarantee of a day's wages. Did they focus on that? No. It's always more. more. What about me? How can I get more reward, more blessing? We're blessed to be a blessing. And it's so easy to forget that. How many of us, if I were to, to survey the room, my guess is that, that many here have been Christians for many, many, many years. But how, how often is our tendency to forget that we've been blessed, not so that we can have things our way. We've been a Christian, not so that now we can just create our own little Christian community and, and, and serve our, have it serve us. But we've been blessed to be a blessing to others. We're always to be looking outward and, uh, and remembering what we've been saved for. Secondly, and this fills out the picture a little bit more, our reward is full if our service is joyfully to him. Our reward is full if our service is joyfully to him versus our re- reward is to, and we worked, we labored to put him somehow in our debt to somehow build our own kingdom, to somehow, hey, we're going to do this, but we better be getting something back from it. Rewards are an interesting thing in Scripture. The more I've studied them, the more confusing them becomes. What does it mean to have eternal rewards? If we're saved not by what we do, not by our merit, but what Jesus has done for us, then where does the idea of, of rewards come in in, in eternity? Can't I do enough stuff to, to maybe have more gold or a bigger house or so I can say to you in heaven, oh, look what I got you know, next to you. you know, that doesn't make sense based on what we know of who God is in, in his kingdom. So what, what is the deal? What's the, what's the deal with rewards in scripture? Well, you look at a few passages, you start to piece it together. And I'm going to give you some sanctified imagination in a minute that I'm going to have to step away from. because It's probably not uh, directly out of the word of God. But what do we know from the word of God? Well, Psalm 19 speaks of reward, and, and he talks about the, the psalmist talks about the word of God um, being sweet, and sweeter than honey, and it, it guides us in the, in, in the path of righteousness. It, 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 it does all these things for us. Now, let me read Psalm uh, 19.11 there, because there's a, there's a twist, kind of the, a verse that the whole psalm hangs on. He says this, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them, talking about the law of the Lord, by the, the statutes, the precepts of the Lord, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. Is he saying there, if you can keep all these statutes, then, man, you're going to have a great big house in heaven. What does he say? What's, what's the reward? What is, what is he talking about there? Well, He's saying the same thing that C.S. Lewis tries to say, 
when he's talking about this, this thing that we've talked about in here a good bit, of the inward part of our character. As we follow after God's good word, it is a light into our path. And we follow in obedience to that. We grasp hold of this, this word that is sweeter than honey, that gives life to us. That the, the inner part of us, the, the part that's our character, is turned a little bit more and a little bit more into a person who knows and loves God. A, a person whose character is, is one that reflects God's character. And that in itself is a reward. It's a beautiful thing. To, to In the thousands of choices that we have every week, the more we choose to obey and to follow what God's word is, the more we're made a little bit more into the type of person God wants us to be. He has for us to be. And that is God's best. So the people that we're becoming in itself is a reward. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 go further to talk about rewards. And they, it says a lot. It's worth going and reading sometime. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 just to see what, what it does say about where we're headed. And it, it starts with saying in chapter 4 that we have a treasure in jars of clay. And this treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He said we carry it around in jars of clay. We're like clay pots. We're breakable. You know, we're, we're not worth much in and of ourselves apart from, from God. But we've got this treasure in us. The, the, what makes us great is what we hold inside of us. And that is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is our treasure. And so we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is, is wasting away, it says our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then it goes on to talk about you know, what's, that one day this, what's mortal will be swallowed up by life and all these beautiful terms of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And then he makes one statement towards the end of that passage. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now again, there's the idea of rewards. We will receive, and this is not talking about Christians and non-Christians, it's talking about all believers. We'll receive what is due them for what's done in the body, good or evil. The picture there that Paul is painting is that we'll take all this stuff that we've gathered up through what we've done and our works for God, and in the cleansing fire that comes in the day of Jesus, when he transforms all things, what is of God? What brings him honor and glory? will remain and be made even more glorious. But what is straw and chaff and useless will be burned up and done away with. So what we've done from the Lord will be revealed. It'll be revealed for what it is. Some will be have eternal weight and will, will, will go on with us in a more gloriously transformed state. Others will be done away with because it has nothing to do with God. So the question that Paul asks underneath that is, where are you spending your time for God? Is it really of God or is it of your kingdom that you're building for yourself? It's going to be revealed. We could talk about other passages, but let me just say this as, as application. Here's how I imagine it. And this is imagination. Sanctified imagination. I think about it this way. I love music. Absolutely love music. I wish I had training from early, early age and could, you know, could, have, could have had a... a a career in music. That was something I always dreamed of. And, and the more I tasted it coming through college and after college, the more I was like, man, there's something in me that's made for this. I, I love it. I, I play guitar, though not very well. I play guitar and, um, and, 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 and try to write uh, music some. And, and it, it just gives me life. 
I would love for that to be a huge part of my eternity. Now, there was a time and there was a series of choices that I, that I could have made that would have used music to glorify Eric and to build my kingdom. And God directed in such a way that, that much of, of, of the music part of my life is, is put on, on the shelf for now and is set aside. And, and I, I hate it. I use it as much as I can and, and, and work it into to, to my job as much as I can. But the truth is I, I, I yearn, I long to, to play and to write and to, um, to do music more often. Well, here's how I think about it in the new heavens and the new earth when the terms of reward. If there's been sacrifice, and it's been made in pure heart for the Lord, if what you have used, what I have used my guitar for, is truly of the Lord and glorifies Him and not for myself. And by the way, you can lead worship, you can do a whole lot of things more to glorify yourself than God with music. But to the extent that those things, the sacrifices, the, the dust that it gathers when I don't play it, uh, as, as much as I want to, and, and the times that I do play it, to, to the glory of God, in some way that's going to be given back to us in greater measure, a hundredfold, as Jesus says here. I don't know if that means I'm going to have an amazing guitar in heaven, and I'm gonna actually going to be able to play it very well and do it to the glory of God for all eternity. I don't know what that looks like exactly, but in my sanctified imagination, what I think it, that, that's what I think it means. It's going to be an awesome guitar. And I'm going to be an amazing player. So I invite you all to my concert in, the, in, in eternity. Right now, you, you can reserve a seat. So. Um, or our homes. We can apply that to so many different areas. Our talents, our material gifts. There's going to be continuity between this world and the next. It's going to be free from sin. So we, don't know, we, we can't imagine what it's going to be like. But in some way, that's the idea of rewards. That we're going we're gonna to get some of it back a hundredfold if it's been done to the glory of God. But it, it, we won't get it back. We won't be rewarded if it's been for us. If it's been for our kingdom or for something else other than God. And that's the point that he's making in this parable. Last thing. Our attitude towards people and towards our work reveals our attitude towards our God. And therefore sets our place in the kingdom. And that's the main point that he's, he's trying to make through this. All this, this other stuff all leads up to this. Is that God cares more for people than he does for things. He cares more for people than he does for the work that we do. He cares more for people than, than the things that we say we do for him all the time. Um, the, another parable that's very similar to this is the parable of the prodigal son. Or the two, parable of the two sons as some call it. In that parable, there's a prodigal son that, that basically looks at his father in his eyes and says, you might as well be dead to me. Can I have the money that I'm going to get when you're dead? And I'm going to go and take it. And the father gives it to him. And he goes and he wastes it, spending it on himself. Well, he repents. And he comes back and the father receives him with welcome arms and throws a feast for him and takes him back in as his son. There's another son in that parable who's been with the father the whole time. And yet when this son comes back, his attitude towards the son shows that he's actually more lost than the prodigal son. Because his attitude towards the son is, hey, I almost would be glad if you were dead, but what about the inheritance that you squandered? That was partly mine, and you've wasted it. I would be 
I'm more upset that you're back and you've lost the money than if the money was back and I lost you. And he basically looks at the father and he says, I can't take this. I'm not going to come into this feast that you're throwing. I don't agree with this. He's basically telling the father the same thing that the younger son said. He's saying, this time with you, that isn't what I was here for. I was here because I was going to get the inheritance. He was looking to the inheritance as well, what he could use the father for. And though he chose a different path, the path to stay, he was saying, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff, and then I'm going to get the reward. What did he want? Well, the same thing that the younger son had wanted early on, the money, the inheritance, not the father. He didn't care about the father. See, his, his view of people and his attitude of his work showed what his attitude towards the father was. He didn't want the father. He wanted what the father could give him. And that's these workers. These workers that have been there all day, they get the benefits of the labor. They get the benefits of the relationship with the owner. But that's not what they want. They want the reward. And he says, that if that's what you're about, then the first are going to be last. And many that are last, that, that didn't have the opportunity until the end, or, or see the opportunity until the end, will get it and, and respond and be first. These day laborers, that's what they were. They worked day to day. And whatever, whatever money they got paid provided for their family. This owner is the key of the passage. It's really he that is what the kingdom is like because he points to the father. And these people, these, these, these laborers that were hired late in the day, they weren't given what they deserved. They weren't given what they worked for. They were given what they needed. See, Peter is being told the same thing that we learned last week. And with the parable of the unmerciful servant, you've been given forgiveness of 10,000 talents, $10 billion of debt. But then you also, Peter, can expect billions in inheritance, a hundredfold what you've gotten in this life. But only if what you're about is me, is the owner, not about what your work can get for you. Or what you feel like you've merited. If you want to get what you merit, then you're going to get punishment. Anything above and beyond that, forgiveness and blessing, is um, to be cherished, is to be uh, received in gratitude, um, because that is your true reward, is to get to be with the owner for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you that you teach us about your kingdom. You don't leave us to guess. Forgive us for times when we've taken uh, the blessing that you've given us and wanted to hoard it for ourselves instead of being a blessing to others. Forgive us for attitudes of wanting to see what we've done for you as meriting uh, further reward instead of seeing you as the reward and, uh, and being thankful and grateful for it. Forgive us and make us more like uh, those that have been forgiven much and so love much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.